Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is John Arroyo, assistant professor in the School of Planning, Public Policy, and Management at the University of Oregon. Prior to joining the faculty in fall 2019, Arroyo was an Andrew W. Mellon Fellow in Latino Studies at the School for Advanced Research in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Arroyo is a scholar and practitioner of urban planning, migration studies, Latinx studies, and cultural policies. He's interested in the social, cultural, and po policy dimension of immigrant-centered built environments and urban design practices. Arroyo is currently working on his first monograph, Shadow Suburbanism, Mexican Everyday Life and Fear in Greater Atlanta. Thanks, John, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. So first, tell us about your background and how you came to be interested in urban studies. Sure. So I grew up in unincorporated East LA and the unincorporated part is really important because it sort of meant that we didn't have a lot of local elected officials to respond to to help us when we needed support or infrastructure or social services, those types of things. So my family grew up really poor and it was a mixed status family uh, from central Mexico. And so various layers of that family all lived in the same area in East LA and sort of Growing up and seeing all of the housing issues they were going through, um, all of my brothers and sisters who grew up with asthma and other things we were dealing with, um, near all these freeways, there was no park space and we just really struggled with transportation issues. And so that just made me realize in high school, when I went to a mixed high school, started seeing more of LA, that not every neighborhood looked the same. <laughs> and I had a lot of questions about that. It led me to sort of a career of public service for a while and now in research. So wh what, what inspired you to go from public service into research? What, 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 sure. what happened there? So I was working for the city of Los Angeles for a while and the county of Los Angeles and other planning related jobs. And I think I got to a point where I realized I had these bigger questions about process um, that I don't think could be answered at a sort of practitioner level. And so everyone kept saying, you're gonna end up back in school. And so, uh, so I did, and I never thought I was going to leave Los Angeles until I did, and then I started going everywhere else. <laughs> and uh, started seeing how a place like Los Angeles in my neighborhood compares to other places, and came back with lots of ideas, but also thoughts about how this really can be a, a critical investigation in many ways. So one of the things that I've, I personally found interesting about your work is how interdisciplinary it is. So you. You know, you're an urban planner, you study urban planning, but you've also got this humanities thing, an arts thing going, and some social science, anthropology. Right. Why is interdisciplinarity important for your work? Right, so for me, planning comes from sometimes a policy perspective, depending on the school that it's in, or it comes from sort of a design perspective. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I come from an urban design, sort of humanistic perspective in many ways. And when I was doing my PhD, uh, I did my PhD at MIT, which was a very engineering-focused school, right? Very science-based. <laughs> and so I was interested in these broader culture uh, issues in sociology and structure and race. And they just kept telling me, you're gonna have to find those people. We have a few of them here, but you're gonna have to make that network. Mm -hmm. And so it led me to uh, transnational studies and migration studies mm -hmm. and borderland studies and Latino studies. and in many ways it forced me to reckon with the issues that planning hasn't fully reckoned with yet, mm -hmm. um, where I thought some of the other disciplines are doing it on maybe a historical or theor theoretical way, but maybe planning is trying to grapple with that in an applied way. 
so I thought, how about I try to bridge all of this and see what that looks like. Mm. So here we are. <laughs> Very interesting. So again, for me, since I'm a humanities guy, I'm especially struck by your experience uh, and education in LA that led to your involvement in these creative cultural programs. So tell us about Project 51 and the Play the LA River project. Those are two of these cultural sure. projects you were involved Sure, in, right? so um, uh, when I did my master's thesis, um, that was also at MIT and I came back to LA to do the research and mm -hmm. the question I had was, how are artists engaging with a certain specific type of space? Mm -hmm. And I thought I would review a master plan the way that planning students normally do for these exercises. And everyone said, no, no, what's happening on the ground? The city's doing one thing. Whether or not you agree with that is, is on one side. Mm -hmm. On the other side, artists are protecting this narrative of this really strange space, the LA Rivers, this trapezoid of concrete, and yeah. it's uh, recently in 2010 became an actual official river for the, the government, the EPA. Mm -hmm. um, and so as I looked at that, I thought, you know, there's a lot of informality, there's a lot of space here to kind of rethink this, but artists were really the ones who were helping us reimagine that space deliberately, and it wasn't subconscious. Uh, many of the artists working in that space had actually been the early advocates who had started the nonprofit organizations, mm -hmm. so that led to Prof Project 51 where it was a group of people, and actually someone here at U of O, Stephanie LeManager, was a part of this early on, mm -hmm. and several other people from UC schools and other schools, mm -hmm. and they basically decided how could we engage people in a space that they've been told they shouldn't go to or it's illegal to go to. And so we developed a game um, that was a, a card game, um, and we thought, you know, the original miles of the LA River was 52 miles. Um, and then mm -hmm. we thought, there are 52 weeks in a year, and there are four sort of uh, suits in a card deck. There are four areas of the LA River. So we made all that work and we developed a game that was large format that was playable, but also uh, 52 weeks of programs leading everyone mm -hmm. in LA from the head headwaters of the river all the way to the mouth of the river over a 52 week period. Um, we brought maybe eight to 10,000 people altogether mm. to a space where very few people had gone to or mm. had a healthy sort of fear of growing up in LA uh, or had seen in music videos but didn't know if it had any <laughs> other meaning. So it, it became a really special project, especially huh. as I was sort of afar working on it in various aspects. So how does that, how do you understand the relationship of that kind of project with your work in urban studies? Sure. So. Um, so I was hired here to help uh, build a new group on access and equity mm -hmm. in this larger idea of inclusive urbanism. Mm -hmm. And looking at inclusive urbanism, seeing um, who is the city for, who's designing the city, who's changing the governance, and what are the consequences when we don't look at that for underrepresented populations of all kinds. And so um, for me, a project like Project 51 and Play the LA River really tried getting at that and saying there are different ways that we can get people involved. Um, games are one way. Um, there are different opportunities that we're not looking at from doing standard planning practices and different sort of uh, charrettes and the things that we normally think that we're doing a good job with but necessarily kind of leave things um, 
half empty in some ways. Mm -hmm. And so um, the humanities thing for me is really important just because I see that work as social practice art in many ways. And um, there's a big movement now in sort of community-centered design or social practice art, um, which is much more deliberate than just saying, I've created art. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to have a community component. And I agree that not every artist needs to have that mandate, but for those that are looking for that connection, it's, uh, it brings planning and art into a really great conversation. So you mentioned the term um, inclusive urbanism, mm -hmm. and you, you began to sort of imply what that means. Sure. Why don't you take a minute to tell us what inclusive urbanism is? Sure, so um, inclusive urbanism is really coming back down. There are all these neologisms in planning, uh, landscape urbanism, ecological <laughs> urbanism. There are many urbanisms. Mm -hmm. Inclusive urbanism really helps infuse um, everything from race and gender and class and thinking about all of the design and equity sort of elements that we should be looking at cities but traditionally um, seem to fall short on. Mm -hmm. And so the University of Oregon in 3 p.m. here is making a real deliberate effort to make ourselves a center of where you would study that. And Oregon being a really interesting place to think about that mm -hmm. given the history of Oregon, sort of diversity issues in Oregon. And here, um, everything from public participation issues to actual, uh, the urban design, the actual functional space of what we're creating, who's involved in that process at which point, and how that is carried through through a policy or governance standpoint. So what are some of the things that urban planning can help uh, communities to make their places and communities more inclusive? How, how do you do this stuff? What, what, what kind of things happen or what kind of considerations are taken into, you know, when, when they're figuring out how to make a, a, a location more inclusive? Sure. So first off, it would be <coughs> recognizing the diversity that exists in that city. And I think a lot of times we spend so much time with um, uh, statistical models or sort of census data that we don't take the time to actually make those partnerships and relationships. And that takes a lot of time, especially in communities that are not traditionally um, geared towards filling out this kind of paperwork or being involved or being invited to those processes <laughs> or those meetings. On the second hand, I think I would say it's really important in terms of the design of that, knowing sort of all these cultural traditions and understanding how people are coming to different spaces, whether they're migrating from a different country or a different region of this country, um, what they bring with them, these value sets and other sort of cultural aspects and elements um, really infuse what spaces should look like. And I think we have such a normative view oftentimes of planning and architecture and urban design as to it should look a certain way and this is the metric for what makes something beautiful or functional. Um, and I think in the work that I'm doing, I'm trying to wedge in their larger questions and saying, are we doing it the right way? And if we're not, then what are the ways that actually can include some of these other populations? Because these populations are becoming the, uh, the larger populations in a lot of these areas and cities, and even outside of cities, as mm -hmm. a lot of my research and my book is working on. So I, I want to go there in a minute, but I, I just want to follow up. So I've, I've uh, uh, heard you talk about um, the way in which barrio urbanism or mm -hmm. Latinx urbanism sure. has, uh, on the one hand, it has a kind of progressive ambition, but there is this way in which it has in the past tended to 
support certain stereotypes, sure. right? You know, sure. this is the way that Latinx yes. people live, and this is what a Latinx house should be right. like. So say a little bit about how y your work tries to avoid those kinds of perpetuations sure. of certain stereotypes. Um, I was once asked, what's the future of Latino studies? And one of the answers I gave was, I think it's really important looking at the border condition right now, the actual U.S.-Mexico northern border there, mm -hmm. but also thinking, you know, these borders and these geographies actually spread beyond the border uh, into other regions of the country that are these new immigrant destinations. And so for me, it's really important to kind of think about that. The Latino urbanism uh, theories and all of those elements that were really popular in the late 90s really focused on sort of the East LA's mm -hmm. and the Houston's and the Phoenix's and the Chicago's, um, but didn't really leave space for thinking, how does this play out in an area that's not a traditional ethnic uh, main street or corridor? And so, I take all of those theories in the book and I put them in an area of Atlanta that is this big new immigrant gateway that it has a lot of friction between sort of the binary of black-white relations in a place like Atlanta, but also puts them in the suburbs and says, um, what we see about what Latino space is in an East LA is very different in a highly regulated suburban space. And you drive through gated communities and you could imagine that it's not a Mexican population as I'm studying. And I'd say actually there are three families that live in that house and two in that house. Um, but they're, all of their stuff is very interior in mm -hmm. the way they're using these elements. So the focus on texture and colors and muralisms and woodwork is either happening in their backyards or in interior malls or in the ways they're sort of connecting with transnational iconography and the uh, taxi industry that they've created there in this suburb. And so it's, it's become a way to turn everything on its head and say, I think we need a 2.0 of what these sort of uh, survey views are looking at and it's uh, not accurate and there are large populations of Latinos, of Mexicans living in Montana, yeah. in Maine. Um, I know it's not what we were expecting, but this is where they are and this is now what is the big movement in the 21st century. Yeah, this is one of the things that's most fascinating about your work. I mean, for somebody like me who lives on the West Coast, you know, I think of the Mexican immigrant communities that we have in Oregon and sure. in California. Sure. Um, Atlanta, the suburbs of Atlanta, what is, I mean, for, you know, it's like, I have no, I had no idea. Right. So first of all, say why, why, why those populations are there mm -hmm. and why are they in the suburbs? Because that's another one of these stereotypes that we sure. don't, you know, we think, no, no, no. Communities of color are in urban centers. Right, so, so right. Tell us about that. So early sociology tells us out of the Chicago school that uh, everything was happening in the center and we have these early diagrams and concentric circles proving that. Um, <laughs> fast forward over a hundred years and where that movement is is so different. The Atlanta story is unique in that it's connected to the Olympics. The 1996 in Atlanta, um, uh, the Olympics there, um, they were a little behind in facility development, and so they needed a lot of labor. They brought in a lot of Mexican workers, thinking that they would just stay temporarily until the facilities were done and would leave. What happened at that time is not only did they stay, they brought over their families, and because Atlanta didn't have a traditional Mexican enclave in the center metro area of Atlanta, they moved to the suburbs, where most of their work was either in uh, 
uh, poultry uh, further north in the carpet plants and in agriculture. A lot of the Mexican population now um, works in the service sector. And Atlanta, with the growth of the Hartsfield Airport becoming the busiest airport in the world after the Olympics, then uh, had this growth of Fortune 500 companies. Mm -hmm. They all moved to the suburbs and they all needed housing. And who was really good at building housing and mm -hmm. construction? Um, and so those people continued to have jobs, but they decided to stay and build their families. And Atlanta became a place that wasn't a middle ring sort of, or it was, it was an aspirational place for them to get to, mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't uh, a ladder place where they were hoping to get somewhere else. This is where they wanted to stay. So most of the population I spoke to were coming from LA and uh, Mexican Orange County, um, Chicago, Houston. This was their secondary or tertiary move mm -hmm. to the region. Some of them were coming from straight from Mexico too. So it was an interesting mix along with the growing Indian and Korean population as well. So what are some of the unique challenges that those Latinx populations face? So the interesting story about this one suburb that I was looking at outside of Atlanta, Gwinnett County, is that it also became a hotbed of immigration federalism. Mm. And immigration federalism meaning sort of the local level attention to policies and the ability and authority for uh, municipal governments, police, county sheriff to enact certain federal laws or at least play a part in connecting them with uh, federal agencies. Um, so um, in Atlanta, there were several of these local laws that became sort of deportation central laws. Mm -hmm. And so there's a large um, facility, the Stewart Detainment Center there, um, outside of Atlanta, maybe two hours south. And so this would allow people uh, broken taillights. Um, a traffic infraction would immediately start the process to get you deported. And this, uh, the New York Times a few years ago, two years ago, wrote a story on how this county was sort of the future of local level immigration law and how every other states were copying this county mm -hmm. in what they were doing. Uh, some of them has to deal with E-Verify, uh, document status, things like that. Others were anti-immigration housing ordinances mm -hmm. or looking at bloodline connections. Mm. So people in municipal governments checking families that had too many cars and seeing whether or not they were extended family or actually um, you know, direct immediate family. So there were a lot of ordinances with the rise of the population that were commensurate with the rise of new ordinances that were about beautification, about mm. the way certain cities should look like. And those didn't factor in the cultural needs of the new population. I know I saw a statistic on, on a talk that you gave about the incredible growth in the amount of deportations resulting from traffic violations. Right, right. That became a, like a real, one of the major ways right, that they would identify right. as people. It was about 30% um, years ago, now it's about 70%, it's the complete opposite. And so uh, Mexican immigrants in Atlanta, documented and undocumented, live in great fear, and the book is called Shadow Suburbanism because it shows how they're, amidst all of this fear, um, are still persevering and manifesting different agencies. And I tend to see in all the research that's been done that a lot of the work that we do on immigration here tends to be about political incorporation or religious incorporation or economics contributions, things like that. But we rarely look at how the built environment changes, and how immigrants change space. So, so tell us a little bit about what you found in the suburbs of Atlanta about those right. things. Um, one of the most interesting finds was the uh, 
the amount of work that had gone in into uh, building these sort of shadow cities and shadow infrastructure. Mm. So um, some of the mobile home parks were very close to other city services, libraries, uh, uh, pharmacies, things like this, local health clinics. Uh, they were so afraid to leave their own home, mm. rightfully so, and they would communicate with WhatsApp and other messaging services as raids were happening on different intersections. And so Atlanta was definitely a place where getting in your car to do anything could mean a complete upending of your life. Um, so a lot of these groups would um, self-select to work on, um, we're gonna build our own local library here um, in our community where we live, it's Spanish only. Um, one of the greatest findings was the growth of the uh, sort of Latino, Latina taxi industry mm. there. And so um, mm. depending on certain markets that had a regional focus in different states uh, of Mexico, people would go there because there wasn't a lot of social service to assist them in this county. And the ones that did exist were really overburdened. So they'd go there and they'd be able to find jobs, information center, and they sort of acted as uh, community centers, not just commercial centers. Mm -hmm. And so um, different uh, states in Mexico had different icons and they would have their own taxi service because the uh, rail line there um, wasn't extending into this county. It's tried several times and there are many reasons why uh, it hasn't been allowed. And so um, huge dearth of sort of transit access um, and a big equity issue at that point. Um, uh, different social service centers starting shuttles, um, uh, families starting their own transportation, um, mm. vans and buses. On the housing side, that was really fascinating in the ways that people were building sort of some of their own self-serve uh, housing. Um, it would brings in some other sort of uh, life safety issues too, um, because they're doing that. Sometimes it's sanctioned, sometimes it's not. Um, the ways they were building sort of their backyards were medicinal plants to share with some of the other uh, Mexican communities. And so people were really struggling to find each other and figure out what was the need that the cities or the county wasn't serving. And because many of them were undocumented, they didn't have the ability to have the transnational geographic actual connection to go back to Mexico. Mm -hmm. So they created those villages and those needs there in mm -hmm. Atlanta in a shadow way where planners could drive through most of this county and not know mm -hmm. that any of this was happening. Fascinating, yeah. really fascinating. So you did your master's work focused on LA. Your PhD work is focused on these suburbs mm -hmm. of Atlanta. So now you're here in the state of Oregon. Right. So tell us what you're, what you're finding or what you're planning to do in this context where we are. Sure, I used to come up to Oregon a lot for uh, concerts and music uh, <laughs> coming up from LA and really interested in the music scene here in the late 90s. And um, I knew coming into this that Oregon was more than meets the eye. Mm. Uh, there is definitely a certain narrative about Oregon um, not being as diverse and that has uh, definite merit. But there's a lot happening here with populations, um, uh, a sharply declining black population that's still doing a lot of wonderful work to fight uh, gentrification in places like Portland. Yeah. Um, and so I'm working on a project related to that. Uh, the Mexican population up here, another Latinx immigrant population, has sort of version 2.0 from the California chapter. That chapter is about agriculture. This chapter is about um, wineries mm -hmm. and uh, salmon fisheries and timber and sort of the abuses that a lot of those industries also have. And so 
I'm really interested in looking at what the new immigrant gateway sort of phenomenon looks like here and a broader Pacific Northwest sort of Rockies. I'm really interested in Idaho also mm -hmm. and uh, the New York Times just did a really interesting article about the Yakima Valley and uh, New Mexican migration there and all the tensions in these small cities there in southern Washington and even Alaska being a really large new center of new immigration with booming tourism there and film production. Mm. And so um, I'm really interested in looking at sort of some of the rural organizing work that's happening here and also um, sort of rural park planning and land use with a lot of these, these immigrant groups too. Um, and even thinking about sort of what that looks like and what um, a medium-sized city might look at, comparisons between places like Eugene and mm -hmm. Spokane mm -hmm. and Anchorage and Boise that are all about 250, 300,000 population, so it completely reframes what large city is because Eugene for most of the Willamette Valley is a large city magnet and it's a, it's a small city with a lot of big city issues. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of this happening, but you can walk around Eugene and not necessarily see an immigrant uh, sort of condition, which I think does exist and it's on the periphery in the shadow ways, much like um, the Atlanta story is. So tell us about the program that you've come to help create in, in PPM here? Sure, so um, there's several faculty related to this um, and other faculty with interests in access and diversity. And so we're doing a lot to infuse more of the access and diversity experiences and the work that we've done into our classes. Um, we have a requirement on public participation now. Mm -hmm. I'm teaching a class on green cities right now, undergraduate class that's pushing the narrative on what green means, especially in a place like Oregon, mm. looking at topics of green gentrification and the strategies a lot of places have used that um, can seem very sort of uh, easy or sanguine in some ways, but actually have uh, maybe other strategies involved that may not be fair or equal in many ways. And so um, we're starting a new PhD program as well um, and exploring how to make all of these connections both for researchers and um, uh, new um, researchers or um, professors or practitioners. So what's this uh PhD program in? Uh, it would be a PhD in uh, planning public policy and management and it uh, combines all of our uh, three different uh, main disciplines and program groups there. Very interesting. So uh, we just have a couple of minutes left. This will be my last question. So I recently had the opportunity and the, the pleasure of interviewing uh, Helena Maria Viramontes, the author of the celebrated novel Under the Feet of Jesus that was this year's U of O common reading book. Fascinatingly, she's your cousin. <laughs> so um, when she was here, did you get a chance to spend some time with her? We did, yes. Uh, it's, uh, it was such an interesting coincidence. <laughs> I had nothing to do with this. Um, I received a link last spring saying, so look what's the common reading book. And I said, oh, common reading. And I thought, oh, it's related to my family's history. And although it's a work of fiction, there's uh, my grandmother was Petra and it's one of the characters in the book. Oh, yeah. And uh, Elena was best 
friends I grew up with my mom and so it was really nice to go to all the events that were planned here and some of the public events in the city Eugene Public Library see the community groups get together and also really talk about this from sort of an Oregon perspective yeah, yeah. Um, which I think it's a real big thing here and people really want to talk about and um, she shared some stories that she's been working on about my mom and <laughs> them growing up and I've heard a lot of these so it was nice to see this written down and it was just a really special way to start being my first year here at the University of Oregon. Well, that was a, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, John. Welcome to the University of Oregon. Good luck with all the interesting Thank work you. that you're doing. It sounds completely fascinating and really timely. Um, thanks for stopping by. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with John Arroyo, Assistant Professor in the School of Planning, Public Policy and Management at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.